Well, I'm excited today. Today, I begin a long overdue um, biblical exposition of the book of Ezra. I have been praying about this and longing for this day. Uh, so many of you, uh, many of you know that my typical uh, desire as a pastor preacher is that we would have a steady state diet of expositional preaching, which simply means that the point of the sermon is the point of the text, and we draw the content, the makeup, the build, the feel of the sermon from the text itself. So what I want to do with you is introduce just the title and then pray. As you see on the screen, the title is this, Renewal Begins, The Return. It's the subtitle. Renewal begins. Now, the reason that I believe years, uh, um, several months ago, um, the Lord began to lay this book uh, together with Nehemiah on my heart is because I do believe that this is a necessary and relevant book for our time in which we live. That we would have, as it were, a renewal in the church of Jesus Christ here in this city. And here specifically in this place. And as you, if you write in your Bible or if you like to take notes, I would just put somewhere at the top that word renewal. Renewal. Because the entire historical record is going to be one long look at how God renews, restores His people. That's what we're going to be looking at. He restores them to their city, to their homeland, and he restores them to true biblical worship as he has commanded it to take place. So let me pray with you now for just a moment. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to open your word. These ancient words that are there for our comfort. They're there to teach us, to guide us into all truth and righteousness. They're there to reveal yourself to us. They're there to correct us and to shape us. They're there that we might commune with you. They're there that we might have an understanding of your plan and purpose throughout the ages. They're there so that we today can know how your hand and your faithfulness has continued to work your plan even up into this present moment, and therefore give us strength, stability, and courage to press on in our day and in our lives with the mission that you have given us. And Lord, very, very specifically, I want to lead this flock to pray, and I I hope that they will pray with me now this prayer. That you will do something in my heart, in our hearts, that only you can do. That you will give us spiritual renewal. How that will look in every life and every heart may be a little different. But, oh God, we pray that you would do a work in our individual hearts and in this church as a whole to renew us, 
to restore us, to beautify us in the likeness of Christ, to renew us to faithfulness to your word, to your commands, to your commission. Oh God, help us. Help us because we are guilty. Help us because we are weak. Help us because we cry to you and ask you for mercy and ask you for grace. So as we look at how you did this, we pray that you will do it afresh in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let me start with giving you a little historical background. So let me give you, so you're writing notes, just put this down. Historical background. These are just going to be really quick bullet points so that you'll know how we come to this book and where we are. By this time, in the nation of Israel, the Jewish people are in captivity in Babylon. The people of Israel had sinned against God. They had broken His commandments. And God had warned them, even from the time of Moses. I was reading this morning in the book of Deuteronomy, where God had warned them that if they did not obey His commandments, if they would go after other gods, if they would compromise with the other nations around them, we would say today, if you become worldly, that He was going to do the very thing that He did. Namely, to bring judgment upon them. To bring a curse, he says. He says, in essence, to his people, I set before you an open door. I set before you today blessing and cursing. If you will obey, if you will submit, if you will stay loyal to me and faithful to me and obey my commandments, which I have given you through Moses, he says, you will be blessed You will be provided for. You will be protected. But if you do not, you will be cursed. And my hand, God said, my hand that was, that will be and, 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 and could continue to be for your good will be against you. That God Himself will bring judgment upon His people. And so that's exactly what had happened. Because in 586 BC, The Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar, came in, the King Nebuchadnezzar, came in and they took Jerusalem. And they laid to waste the entire city. This was the capital city of the people of God, the covenant people of God. This was the beautiful Jerusalem where the beautiful temple was. Where the worship of the God of heaven and earth took place. Where everything around the life of the Jewish person would rotate around this place and this temple. And it is this place and this temple that God in judgment brought in the Babylonians. And they laid to waste the city. They tore down the walls. And they tore down the temple. They burned its gates with fire. As I mentioned to you. This was prophesied. This was told. They knew that this would happen. Turn with me for just a moment to the book of Jeremiah. 
the book of Jeremiah. You have to turn on past further into the, into the Old Testament to get to Jeremiah. But nevertheless, Jeremiah's prophecy actually happened before the book of Ezra. Because Jeremiah is one of the key prophets who foretold that this was going to happen. And I want you to see it for yourself. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. Now, Judah is the place where Jerusalem is one of the tribes of Israel where Jerusalem is. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years. From the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Take note of that. Did he just call Nebuchadnezzar his servant? Yes, he did. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grindings of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. Seventy years. Then after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. The land of the Chaldeans. For their iniquity declares the Lord. Making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. And so here we have a prophecy, a prophet standing up and saying, all of these years God has sent to you and warned you to flee from the wrath to come, as it were. To flee from the abominations of the other nations. Don't compromise. Don't disobey. And they refused. And God sent, just like he promised, the people of Israel into captivity. 586 B.C., specifically Jerusalem, Judah, was ransacked. And he carried them away as exiles into Babylon. So the covenant people of God have been ravaged. And they have been taken away. 
And now they don't enjoy the land of promise. Now they do not enjoy the worship around the temple. Now they do not experience those blessings that God had promised and that they had enjoyed in years past. Well, 50 years or so begin to pass as Babylon begins to crumble, as it were, from the inside. And as this happens, the nation of Persia begins to take over in power. And that's why we see even in chapter 1 of Ezra, verse 1, in the year, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia. And so here we have a new world power, the Persian power. And Cyrus is on the throne. And there is a first wave of exiles that return to Judah under Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple in 539 to 516 B.C. That's what we're going to be talking about in this, in this story. This first wave comes. And then there is a second wave of exiles that come almost or probably more than 50 years later. And Ezra himself comes around 458 B.C. And so what God had said was that if you sin and when you sin, I'm going to judge you and take you into captivity. And then after you're there for 70 years, I'm going to come and get you. (laughs) And I'm going to bring you back to the land that I promised to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so that you can come back to the land and live once again. In other words, I'm going to renew you. I'm going to restore you back after you have been taken away in exile. Let me take you to one other place that I think is significant in Daniel chapter 9. This is all just thinking about the historical background. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 19, what we find is that Daniel is actually living at the time when God is going to do what he promised he would do, namely to restore them and to renew the people of Israel. Can you imagine that? The 70-year exile is almost over. And God is getting ready to bring the people back. And Daniel is alive. And Daniel is looking at the book of Jeremiah that we just read. He's reading what we just read. Isn't that wonderful? He's reading what we just read, and he's thinking about it. And he's praying to God. And listen to what it says. In the first year of Darius, the son Ahasuerus, by the son of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, so they took power over the Babylonian Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, Perceived, listen to this, perceived in the books the number of years according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And then he turned his face to the Lord and seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And he said in verse 4, I... Prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, and listen to this phrase, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name. To our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. So he is simply confessing 
in this present day what Jeremiah said, what he prophesied would happen. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his ways, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses. The servant of God has been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us all a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. That is so important, my friends. Today, there are hundreds of people that are listening to the word of God. He is telling them, a modern day prophet is standing with the word in hand and telling them to repent and turn away from your sins. And yet all the calamity that God has brought upon you, all the chastisement that he's given in our lives, and that phrase rings in my ears, and yet they have not entreated the Lord. I hope this morning that there would not be one that will leave this place in that condition. Do you know for a fact today that you have sin in your life? Do you know for a fact today that there is definitely, and you will know my friend, that there is definitely a chastisement upon your life? My friend, let me sincerely ask you today, will you hear the voice of the Lord and entreat His favor and do as Daniel has done and confess Verse 14, therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt, what he does, he's remembering the faithfulness of God. Oh, hear it with me today, my friends. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people to become a byword among all who are around us. And I submit to you this morning, cannot many people today in our country say that about the church? Do they not deride us today? Do they not look upon us with shame and oftentimes rightfully so? Verse 17, now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant. And if you can't tell, I'm trying to make this personal for us this morning. O God, listen 
to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So here we have a prophecy of judgment. Here we have the acting of God in judgment upon his covenant people. And here we have a man, a prophet, who is standing on the verge of the renewal of the people of God and the restoration of the people of God. And he doesn't know that exactly yet. And he's crying out to God and he's praying to God and he's pleading with God. He says, it's, it's probably almost been 70 years. I see it here in the book of Jeremiah. And I'm praying to you, oh God, hear us. And he gives a national confession. And my friend, I submit to you this morning that the church needs to do the same. Section number two. That's one historical background. Number two. I want you to think about this phrase with me for just a moment. God's sovereign faithfulness stirs. And I get that right out of the text. We'll see it here in a minute. God's sovereign Faithfulness stirs. To be righteous is to be faithful. To be faithful in a righteous way is to make a promise and keep a promise. To be righteous is to be faithful in your word. What you say you will do. And God is righteous and God is faithful. And God had said that he would be the the God and the shepherd and the ruler of his people Israel. That he would be their God and they would be his covenant people forever. And my friend, God never breaks his word. God may chastise, God may discipline, and even bring this horrific judgment. And you have to understand, this is not like your mom used to whip you when you were growing up, or your dad, or, you know, your parents ground you or keep you from watching television. This is the kind of judgment where people, thousands of people were slaughtered. God may act in severe judgment and chastisement, but He will not forsake His people. He will not. And at the appointed time, He will act. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Ezra. Look and read with me in verse 1. In the first year of, of Cyrus, king of Persia, and listen to what this next phrase says, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The word, the, and, and, and here's, here's, I want you to, this is the phrase. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. What is the proclamation? Here it is, verse 2. Thus says king, uh, Cyrus, king of Persia. 
the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, beside freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So when I read that opening statement, what we're looking at is is the renewal that is beginning among the people of God. And here we see that there is a sovereign faithfulness. God is the one. And when I mention sovereignty, what I am talking about is the reality that God rules the inhabitants of the heavens and the earth. He rules them. He commands angels and demons and human beings. God is in charge of human history. The king of Persia realized it. He said that this God had given him all of the kingdoms to do with as he pleased. (laughs) This king who I do not believe was a true worshiper of this God of heaven. Nonetheless recognized that it was this God of heaven who had granted him the ability to be the ruler at this present time. And it was this God of heaven who was giving him the heart. To let the people of Israel go back home. God's sovereign faithfulness stirs. What does he stir? Number one. So this is under God's sovereign faithfulness stirs. Number one. He stirs the pagan king Cyrus. The one who was the captor of the people of Israel. They were captives in a foreign land. And the first thing that we see is that God moves this man's heart to let the people go back home. He has stirred him. He has charged him. Whoever is among you of all his people can go back. And so he stirs his heart. He moves him. God is able to lead a man who has not yet submitted to his lordship. God stirred this pagan king to restore the people of Israel, verse 3. Secondly, to commission assistance from those in the surrounding areas of all the people who were going back in verse 4 and verse 6. He stirs him to send the people back. He stirs him to advocate that there would be gifts given to these people as they go back to their homeland. He stirs this pagan king, Cyrus, number three, to restore the vessels of worship. Look in verses seven and verse eight. Cyrus, the king, also brought out all the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. And he restores all of the vessels back to the people of Israel to carry back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to place those vessels that are used for the worship of Jehovah back in their proper place. 
God's sovereign faithfulness stirs this king to restore the people of Israel. To commission assistance of the locals for the people of Israel. So that they will not go back empty handed, but they will go back well stocked as it were. To restore the vessels that will be used in worship. And fourthly, to establish Jewish leadership over the people. Look in verse 8. In verse 8, King, again, Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazzar, the prince of Judah. So he took all of this and he gives it over to this man called Sheshbazzar, who is also believed to be that same guy that I mentioned to you earlier, Zerubbabel. That's a wonderful word to say, by the way. Just try doing that like three times in a row. Zerubbabel. <laughs> but that's who it is. And so he establishes through this pagan king. He moves to fulfill his promises. The sovereign God who is ruling the inhabitants of the earth. Who had made a promise in faithfulness begins with the king of Persia. And he stirs in him a desire to send the people back, to give them assistance, to give them the vessels to go back and rebuild the temple. And to give them Jewish leadership to see the process through. Number two. So this is the first one was he stirs the king, the pagan king. Number two, God's sovereign faithfulness stirs the Israelites. Stirs the Israelites. Verse five. Look at it if you will. Verse five. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites. Now, just stop right there. People are acting, right? The fathers' houses, the leadership, they're going to get up and go. We can go home, okay? (laughs) We're going home. All right, let's get up and go home. But look at what the next phrase says. Everyone whose spirit God. Had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. My friends, the first thing that we need to understand about the book of Ezra and about the entire word of the living God that you have in front of you is that what we are reading is not so much the actions of human beings, but the actions of God. It is God Himself who moved and stirred in the heart of a pagan king to send the people back. It is God himself who stirred in the people of Israel the desire to go back home. And so, as it were, it seems as if, because there are not, all the people don't go back the first time. Some of them, no doubt, had gotten used to living in Babylon. Some of them, no doubt, had enjoyed living there. Some of them, no doubt, had begun to to borrow from the pagan practices and worshipped false gods and lived in the wealth of Babylon so long that they didn't want to go back when they got a chance. And so that's the second thing. He stirs the Israelites. And if you want a couple things about that, under number two, he stirs them to rebuild the temple. That's the first thing. He stirs them to go back to their homeland. Now, this is in preparation for renewal and restoration of the temple. Now, what do you do at the temple? What's so significant about the temple? What happens there? Worship. You see, it's not about the bricks. It's not about the stones. It's not about the gold. It's about God. 
the worship of the true and the living God. The people of Israel were God's covenant people who were to be the representatives of the kingdom of God on earth. And the worship that took place in Jerusalem was to be done as God had prescribed them to do it. Why? Because it was in that kind of worship, that kind of worship, where there would be sacrifices given in faith, depending upon this God, to atone for their sins and to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments. And this was to be on display for the world to see the glory of God in His covenant people and in their faithfulness. In worshiping Him. Thirdly. So God stirs the Israelites to rebuild the temple. He stirs them to go to their homeland. And He stirs them to make a record. To make a record. One of the things that a lot of people don't like about Old Testament books. Is because it seems like you get the. (laughs) You know so and so begat so and so. And so and so begat so and so. And about three of those. And you're done. Right? I know you. I'm the same way. We have a hard time, you know, pronouncing them. So I go and I'm like, you know, A begat E because I just say the first letter of their, of their name because it gets so difficult to go through that. And chapter two gives us a long section of that. But I want us to stop this morning and think about this for a moment. If it was significant, significant enough for God to have that recorded in his eternal word, let me ask you the question. Do you think it's significant? If it is significant enough for God to make sure that that's recorded in His Word and preserved for us through the centuries, is it not significant? The answer is yes, it is. And I wrote down, you're going to love this. (laughs) I wrote down 14 things that He has them to record in this text. Number one, He has them to record the vessels. Chapter 9, I mean verses 9 through 11. All the vessels, he has them record. He wants them written down. And there's going to be a, this is, I'm going somewhere. Okay, this is going to be significant. Number two, he records all the leaders by name. Chapter 2, verse 2. He records all the leaders by name. All of the leaders. Why? Because leaders are held accountable to God with a higher accountability than those who are not leaders. It's true. When I get to heaven, I will give an account for how I've led, what I've said and preached and taught and used my influence in this church and at the church I was at before. I will give an account for everything I've ever said and the way that I lead, whether it's biblically faithful or not. And I believe that is significant. The reason why you see all throughout the scripture that the leaders are mentioned by name. Number three. God stirred the Israelites to make a record. That's what I'm talking about. Number three, he stirred them to record the tribes by name and by number. Verses three to verse 35. So verse three to 35 is all of these tribes and the the names of the father's houses. The name of the father and how how many from that tribe, how many from that household came. By name and by number. All that are represented. Number four, he records the priests. And it's significant. This is where it starts to get really significant. This is what made me start to really think, this is really important. Because he mentions the priest in verses 36 to 39. Why mention the priests? Why mention the vessels? You think about that a moment. Why mention the priests? Why mention the vessels? It's going to dawn on you as we go on. Number five, he records, he has them to record the Levites. Verse 40. 
Well, I mentioned the Levites. What did the Levites do? Well, the Levites helped serve the priests in their service in the where? In the temple. So he records the priests. He records the Levites. Number six. He records the singers. He records the gatekeepers. Verse 42. The gatekeepers to where? The temple. Number eight. He records the temple servants. Verses 43 to 54. There are temple servants that are mentioned. Wonder why it's significant that we understand that he had it recorded that there were temple servants going back. Number nine, he records the sons of Solomon's servants whom Solomon had appointed also to help in the service of guess where? The temple, verse 55. Number 10, he records the unconfirmed People of Israel, verses 57 to 63. So even those people who came, who said, you know, this is my dad, this is my father, you know, and but it was unconfirmed. They could not prove that they were of the priesthood, and so they were, they were told to set aside, but it's even recorded that they were there. 59 to 63. Number 11. God stirred the Israelites to record the servants that they brought by number. Verses 64 and 65. Number 12. He stirs them to record the animals that they brought by number. Verses 66 and 67. Number 13. He stirs them to record the offerings that they gave. It says the phrase, according to their ability. Verse 68 and 69. According to their ability, they gave offerings. For the purpose of rebuilding the temple and seeing that it is... That it is well stocked and able to do what it is there to do. And number 14, and finally, he stirred them to record the total number of those, for, namely 42,360 and verse 64. And you can add to that the servants that they give, 7,337, and plus the singers, which are 200. So why does he stir a pagan king? To send back the people of Israel, to provide assistance for them, to give them the vessels, and to give them Jewish leadership. Why does the God of heaven stir the people of Israel, desire to go home? And then he has them, he stirs in them a desire to make sure that they record all of the things that we've, meant, that we've mentioned to you today. It's all meant to point to this fact. That this all is God's restoration of his people. To rebuild the temple. To restore the people in order that, the, the, that he would restore worship in that place. This was their goal. This was their purpose. This was their mission. To worship the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To worship the God of heaven and earth. And to worship him rightly as he had commanded them in the temple that is in Jerusalem. When they go back and build it. Now, here's a phrase that sums up everything we've learned. God was providing everything they needed to return, to rebuild, and to renew his covenant people to their land and to proper worship. But what this entire book is about is that what I just read. What God is doing is he is renewing and restoring his people as he promised and his, with his sovereign Faithful power. And he's bringing to pass what he promised. 
so that the people might go back and return, rebuild, and renew his covenant people to their land and to the proper worship of him. And the key in that, in that sentence for me is that he is providing everything that they need. My friend, God will provide everything that you need. He will provide everything that we need together as a church to worship Him properly and to obey His commandments. And all of this was necessary in order that He might fulfill another prophecy, namely that out of the tribe of Judah would come a Messiah, a the one who would be the fulfillment of the temple, fulfillment of the sacrifices, fulfillment of the priest, fulfillment of the prophets. This had to happen. They were scattered throughout the nations and God brought them back to their homeland. Re-established the temple worship to bring about and to usher in the Messiah who was to come. Well, let me close by saying this. Renewal and restoration is needed today. In the church of Jesus Christ, there could not be a more relevant book. That there is a need for renewal and revival and restoration to the people of God, to biblical faithfulness and fervency. I simply ask you this morning, in your own heart, let me ask you this. Do you believe you see in your own heart And in the life of the churches that you know of, in brothers and sisters, actual eyes, in their tongues and what they say, in their actions and the way that they live, that there is an all-consuming passion of the people of God for the glory and the worship of God on this earth. Do you see that? My friend, this is relevant for us. David Wells, in his book entitled God in the Wasteland, I'm going to give you a long quote from him. I think it is so relevant. It was written in 1993, I think, which is even more telling. David Wells, this is what he said. There was a time when American evangelicals prized and cultivated biblically chaste Christian thought an incisive analysis of the culture from a perspective apart from it. The world, the culture around us. But in the past few decades, have seen an erosion of the old distinctions, a gradual descent into the, quote, self-movement. A psychologizing of the faith, And an adaption of Christian belief to a therapeutic culture. Distracted by the blandishments of modern culture. We have lost our focus on transcendent biblical truth. If you think that's not true, my friend, you need to read your newspaper. You need to watch your television and see what they're saying on the news every day. Today, listen, we live not only in a culture, but we live in a culture that has a church within it. And a culture that has a church within it that denies that there is transcendent truth. 
within the subset of the culture in which we live in. It's not just a pagan society that's outside of the doors of the church houses, my friend. It is inside the church houses. Objective truth, man, that's something that we used to believe. There's no objective truth. What's true for you is true for you. It might not be true for me. Nothing transcends time. Nothing transcends cultures. Nothing transcends nations. But the church of Jesus Christ was not always distracted by those blandishments. The the church of Jesus Christ had not always lost a focus on transcendent biblical truth. I'm back to the quote now. We've been beguiled by the efficiency of our culture's technique. The sheer effectiveness of its strategies. And we have begun to play by the rules. We now... Blithely speak of marketing the gospel like any other commodity. Oblivious to the fact that such rhetoric betrays a vast intrusion of worldliness into the church. The church does need renewal today. And if I could make it happen, I would have already done it. And so would, no doubt, many of my brothers in arms and many faithful Christians around the world. I'm going to give you seven prayers in conclusion. This is how I want to apply it. We need to see God's faithfulness stir once again. Number one, every one of these comes straight straight out of my heart in light of what we've looked at. This is prayer. Number one, we need to pray that God will renew us to a relentless orientation on God. And seeking our joy in God. In communion with God. How many of you woke up this morning and the first thing and the one thing and the dominating thing of your heart is, I want to have communion with God. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not turning on the TV. I'm not going to fix my coffee. I'm not going to get my newspaper. I'm not going to go on the internet. I'm not going to talk to my wife. I want to have communion with God. How many of you can say that? If you can't say that, that's why this is my prayer. Number two. We need to pray for a renewing of dependence upon God through prayer. The way that the world sneaks into the church is not through the kind of instruments that the band plays or the kind of decor that is on, that is in the building or the kind of clothes that the people wear. That is not the way the world sneaks into the church. The way the world sneaks into the church is through the philosophies of life. And the marketing schemes that David was talking about in that quote wherein we think that we can just peddle the gospel on the streets as any other commodity. Why don't you buy my piece of candy because it is better than what you would get from the competitors. Why don't you buy into Christianity because it's better than any other kind. It is true that it is better, but that's not the way that we win people to Christ. That is not the way that we fulfill the mission of Christ. It is through dependency upon the sovereign power of God that is only tapped into as we pray and ask God to move. Number three, 
A prayer that we would be renewed to dependence upon the sufficiency of the Word of God. Is the Word of God sufficient? I believe it is. Number four, we need to pray that there would be a renewal in us to faithfulness in the mission of the church. Namely, to make disciples who make disciples of all nations. Which means that we will be partnering to plant churches and to support other missionaries. And the reason I say other missionaries is because, listen, you and I are missionaries. You know that? That's what you are if you're a Christian. Number five, we need to pray for a renewal in us to faithfulness to God's plan in the local church through a covenant relationship of accountability and support. Number six, we need to pray that there would be a renewing in our hearts to the pursuit of personal holiness for our joy and for God's glory in our daily lives. How many of you have it as an overarching goal in your lives to pursue personal holiness? And number seven, we need to pray that there would be a renewing in our hearts to biblical faithfulness in all of its revelation and all of its commands. Let's pray. My heart breaks today, Father, because I look out across this wonderful country that you've blessed. I look into your word and I see the promises of glory. I see the beautiful picture of what it is to be a child of God. To be transformed and changed within the context of a local church. To see you and your glory as you've revealed yourself in your word. And then I see in my own heart as the hymn writer of old said, so prone to wonder and astray. As we look around, oh God, we see that our day is not much different than Ezra's. That people are pursuing their own pleasures, their own ideas, their own philosophies, and neglecting the one who is the source of joy and pleasure satisfaction forever and so this morning as we begin this series and we see as you began so many years ago to restore Israel God we pray that you will do a work in our hearts and God as we thought about those last seven things oh Lord we just pray that you will make them reality in each and every one of our lives that we would see the these kind of of renewings going on in our church and in the churches around us and around the world that you would bring about a work for your own glory and for the good of your church and for the good of the nations. Help us to respond, Lord, to your word, to your voice, 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.